0: Alaska's Arctic region is vast, icy, and contains resources that are of interest to not only the eight Arctic nations, but other countries seeking resources for the future. The frozen north has also locked harmful greenhouse gases in permafrost for decades. As the Arctic rapidly warms, how will that feedback accelerate change, and how can it be measured? A new project aims to do that. We'll discuss permanent Permafrost Pathways, today on Talk of Alaska.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
2: As new COVID variants spread, vaccines can help protect you and your community from severe illness. A booster shot provides additional protection especially for those at higher risk. If you're 12 and older and it's been five months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you are now eligible for a booster. Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network.
1: The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters.
0: Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Most Americans have never visited the Arctic, but the images of it show a place of glaring white and ice throughout much of the year. The surface view is one of pristine wilderness, but below the surface of all that ice is carbon, a lot of carbon. How much is at the heart of a new initiative aimed at measuring the emissions from melting permafrost with a goal of helping communities develop their own adaptation strategies and adding those carbon amounts to the calculations for the global carbon budget that aims to limit releases. So how what would happen if permafrost melt were included in the annual numbers? Here to describe the Permafrost Pathways program and what the goals are is Suna Talley, Arctic Program Director for the Woodwell Center for Climate Research. Also with us is Robin Bronin, the Executive Director of the Alaska Institute for Justice, and Patricia Cochran, who is the Executive Director of the Alaska Native Science Commission. Welcome, all of you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank and- you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Lord. Thanks. I wish somebody was in the studio with me, but I know you're all scattered around busy, so that's all right. Later on in the program, we'll be joined by Julius Carl, who is with the Quigilanoc tribe, and um, hear from him directly. You can also join us. Do you have questions about how monitoring thawing permafrost works? Do you have suggestions for communities that should be involved? You can give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's one 800 478 if you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550 8422. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. Sue, Natalia, I want to start with you. First, give us a quick overview of what the Audacious Project is and who's supporting it, because that project is what is uh, behind the standing up uh, funding for the Permafrost Pathways work. So um, let's talk about what is the Audacious Project?
3: Sure. Thanks. Um, so, Audacious is a funding mechanism that's um, sponsored through TED, as in the TED Talks organization, and it's supporting initiatives um, that have a range of um, a range of different types of focus. So, some initiatives are focused on public health. Some are focused on sustainable agriculture. Some are on um, indigenous land rights, and we it's been a process of a couple years Um, we applied for the program and um, once we were selected as one of the 10 finalists we worked with um, the ted organization and as well as um, bridge who are consultants who worked with us on our proposal and then eventually brought this proposal in front of a number of donors um, and philanthropists who work through ted who um, got together and as a team funded funded a number of these projects um, and, and so there are a number of different donors that 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 provide funding into the Audacious Project program.
0: Right, and that's what's and, supporting the permafrost pathways work, correct? E-
3: exactly. And, and the idea is to bring a number of funders together to support big bold ideas that really can't be implemented through other existing funding mechanisms. Um, And so thinking about a number of, you know, donors might fund a startup organization. Well, this is a number of philanthropists that are coming together to fund these big ideas.
0: Is this just in Alaska or are you working with other Arctic nations on this program?
3: So the project is pan, or some components of the project are pan-Arctic and some are focused on Alaska Um, And you want me to get into some more details about the Pan-Arctic components?
0: Well, I just wondered if the permafrost pathways work is starting primarily in Alaska, or if it's kind of a combined effort um, among other nations as well.
3: Yeah, so a lot of the -the on-the-ground monitoring um, focused on measuring greenhouse gas emissions, that will happen across the Arctic, and we're working with an international team to sort of strategically identify the locations where we work based both on the science need, but also on feasibility and logistics of like where we can access and where we can set up monitoring towers. Um, Much of our adaptation work, which um, we can chat more about, others can chat more about, um, will be focused in Alaska. um, But I will say, I think this work is really a model for um, climate adaptation work that is applicable, you know, across the nation and and internationally.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Sue, for getting us started. Patricia, I want to turn to you. Patricia, Patricia Cochran is the executive director of the Alaska Native Science Commission. You have been doing this work for nearly 50 years, Talk about how the relationship with science and scientists has changed for Indigenous communities over those decades.
4: Thanks, Laurie. Uh, sure, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. I've, as you said, I've been doing climate work throughout the the Arctic, Alaska, and actually uh, internationally as well for for close to 50 years. Um, So I've seen a lot of changes throughout um, the decades of experience. I'm really uh, pleased to see a project like this happen because to me, it's one of the first experiences that we've seen where it's really and truly a partnership with communities throughout Alaska. Uh, This is a a program that is uh, community-based that is community led, uh, that really is inspired by the needs of our communities in particular. So um, it's one of those things that we at the Science Commission have been promoting uh, for the last uh, uh, several decades, finding that true partnership so that the community's interests are, are being met and not just the the research and science uh, component of this. I've seen a lot of changes, some good, some bad, uh, some some that are rather indifferent, but this is truly one of those ones that I think will will have a real impact on our communities because our communities have a real say, a real voice in what's going on. And and my role here at the Science Commission is to be the, the elder. I am in fact an Anupak elder born and raised in Nome, uh, I hope to bring all of the experience that I have over the last 50 uh, years in doing climate work to make sure that it's being left to all of our generations to come.
0: And when you talk about the community being directly involved, um, one of the things that you said in a previous interview is that it's one of the most interesting things about the Perm- Permafrost Pathways Project is that its community-based, community-based and that it's long overdue. How is this different than other projects programs that have come into Alaska native communities in the past?
4: Up to me the the real relevance of this project is that that it is uh being as i said being driven by what the community needs are as identified by the communities. It's not just a research paper that some scientist needs. Uh it's not it, it's really uh impacting the the on the ground kinds of problems that we've been experiencing in the Arctic and in Alaska. And you know, also many of our communities uh, have been actively involved in either having to move their communities or uh, to figure out how they can actually remain in the places where they've been for centuries of time. So this to me is one of those uh, amazing projects that listens to the communities, that hears what they have identified as their planning process, as their planning needs, uh, not identified by people outside of the communities. Because in the 50 years that I've been doing this work, the the most important thing I've seen is that the only thing that truly works is when you listen to the communities and when it's done on behalf of those communities. Uh, Local is really where it's at. You have to indeed think uh, uh, globally, but act locally.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patricia. If you're just joining us, we're talking today about a new project in Alaska called the Permafrost Pathways Project. And it is an effort to help communities in coastal and, uh, well, we'll find out exactly where all these communities are. Um, But it's a project to help monitor greenhouse gas emissions from melting permafrost and helping communities figure out ways of adapting to their rapidly changing environment, and also to take those calculations, that monitoring and that measurement of that carbon release, and add those to the overall carbon budget for the planet so that it's being considered when people are talking about how to reduce emissions. one 800 478 is the number if you'd like to join our conversation today. It's the number statewide, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Robin Bronin, I want to get you in here now. Robin is the executive director of the Alaska Institute for Justice. And you said earlier that this is a human rights-based project focused on justice and equity. So explain that convergence there when we're talking about a project on permafrost thaw.
5: Yeah, thanks, Lori. And I'm so honored to be here with Patricia and Sue. So as Patricia said, uh, this is community-based. And what that means is the heart of our work is making sure that the collective and individual rights of the community residents with whom we're working are protected as they navigate the extraordinarily complex federal and state government systems that are in theory designed to provide resources to these communities and are struggling to do that. So the focus of that work is on the policy interventions, which we've started with the communities that we work with and identifying where those barriers are and then working with the communities to advocate for change.
0: The project has $41 million in funding. What, how much is that in the scheme of this overall project? Will more funds be needed to fully implement, or is it enough to get the project up and running now, and maybe you'll build on that in the future? Or Give us some context there.
5: Yeah, so this is uh, ongoing. So this project is not uh, is providing a giant amount of funding to work that we started actually six years ago, and Patricia and I have been working together on these issues for over 10 years. So This funding uh, our the funding that the Alaska Institute for Justice received will primarily go to the tribes that we've been working with now for seven years so that they can hire the staff that they need to address the climate impacts that are happening um, to document the environmental changes that are happening in order for them to access the resources they need and, as I said to identify those barriers that are preventing them from getting access to, to the resources and technical assistance they need.
0: All right. Thank you. Sue, I want to go back to you here. Uh, you've been working in the Arctic. You're a scientist. Tell us how you build a carbon monitoring network. How do you measure those emissions in this vast region?
3: Yeah, so it is a challenge because it is a vast region and, and um, difficult to access on the ground for, for many areas. Um, so, the, you know, the way we've been doing our science in terms of the on-the-ground monitoring of carbon fluxes is, um generally been individual scientist-led, so usually working in one place or maybe two, and then To think about things at the Pan-Arctic scale, we, you know, after the fact try to bring all this information together. And it's um, a lot of effort has been put into this research by the scientific community, but our sort of Pan-Arctic efforts tend to be somewhat opportunistic. And so what we're doing is saying, okay, if we take, now we have this funding, um, if we take a strategic approach Bring in the expertise that we need to guide us and say where are where are the monitoring gaps. We cannot cover every inch of the Arctic, but where are the places strategically um, that are not being monitored? And if we can put in X number of these, you know, we use something called an eddy covariance tower, which measures um, carbon dioxide and methane um, exchange between the land and the atmosphere. You know, if we can put in ten more of these or twenty more of these where would they go in order to reduce our, the unknowns, reduce our uncertainty. And so that's what we're doing. And so the project is involving in somewhat parts, our group installing instrumentation, but much of it is really working with folks who have expertise on the ground and the different locations in the Arctic where there are gaps. And so much of our efforts this coming summer, will be working in areas of Canada and working very closely with, Canadian teams um, to do that implementation, and then also to support science that is already underway, but perhaps that's underfunded. And so monitoring that's been going on for 10 years, we don't want that to stop. Um, So how can we support these scientists? So that's what much of our work is doing. And then um, just to add to that, we are also combining this work that's happening on the ground, um, both in terms of the carbon flux monitoring, but also the monitoring of the kind of landscape changes that the communities will be leading, um, coupling that with satellite data, which does allow us to see much more of the Arctic that we can't access on the ground, and then combining that information into models so that we can project into the future, um, you know, how the lands will change and what that will mean for our carbon budgets.
0: Do you, I imagine that if you're measuring near a community where there's infrastructure, Uh, does that change the rate of emissions when you're by uh, buildings and things that might be attracting more heat to the area than, than if you're just monitoring out in the middle of a wild patch of tundra?
3: Yeah, so that's a good question. And part of our selection process takes that into account. And so When the communities are monitoring permafrost thaw, say, they um, may choose to monitor this in places in the community that are very important, where there's critical infrastructure. And so that is a combined effect of the climate, say, and also the fact that there are people there. And um, so we might do that ground monitoring, the permafrost thaw monitoring in the community and say maybe outside of the community so that we can just get the climate signal. In terms of the greenhouse gas fluxes, we do tend, if if we want to get a pan-arctic number, would put that a ways outside of a community, but also do really like to have these situated near where there are people who can help us with the monitoring and and help lead the research because we can't be everywhere and we also really need that that expertise and that knowledge from folks who live um, on the ground in these remote locations across the Arctic.
0: Do you think monitoring carbon emissions will eventually be as common as monitoring temperature and other data that we now take for granted?
3: That would be wonderful. Um, I think it will be a, a while. And I mean, one of the things I would love to see happening in the future is better um, information from satellites for the Arctic. I mean, it is a challenge because um, some of the satellites can't see the Arctic in the winter when it's dark and the re- resolution isn't good enough and then um, can't pick up the low, relatively low concentrations of greenhouse gases that are coming out of natural systems. So um, I, I think that would be um, wonderful. We're not quite there yet. And so it's we're still at the point where it does require instrumentation and people and instrumentation that breaks and, you know, the challenges of just, you know, working outdoors in in challenging environments.
0: 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you'd like to join our conversation today on Talk of Alaska on the Permafrost Pathways Project that's just been funded and will be getting underway in Alaska, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550 550-8422. 550 You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. We did have an email from someone wanting to know why there are giant methane explosions in Siberia and not in Alaska. Who wants to take that?
3: I, I think I should. <laughs> <laughs> Sue, pointing please. pointing at me, so I think that should be me. So those um, methane explosions and craters have definitely gotten a lot of attention. They are quite, um, have the oh wow factor and are concerning, particularly if you had your home on top of one. Um, and so some of the reasons why we're seeing these in Siberia is just the, um, the structure of the ice and the structure of the land. And so um, there's a number of, there's a number of conditions that are just right to form these. And so there may be deep pockets of gas that could be, um you know, leaking up into these surface pockets, there's a nice thick um, layer of ice, like a quite thick layer of ice that allows pressure to build up. And these are conditions that are found across the Yamal and Gaiden peninsulas of Siberia. And um, that's the likely reason why we're seeing them there. Um, As far as I know, we haven't seen them elsewhere. And um, we have spent some effort um, looking with satellite data. I can't, you know, but, but those are the certain sort of geologic conditions that make it happen there. Interesting. That said, I just want to say those get a lot of attention, but I do think these like less um explosive say changes that may just be like the ground is just sinking. It's those are really really critical changes that are happening because that's what's happening for most of the people in most of the cases uh, for people who are living on permafrost where it's impacting you know water resources and and, and availability you know transport across the landscape and and homes and so i think those changes that sometimes maybe are seem more subtle to the eye for those of us you know who are at a distance don't get as much attention but i think are really what we um want to be focusing our attention on because of the human impact
0: all right thank Thank you, Patricia. Turning to you, the Division of Forestry uh, today said that a tundra fire burning near Queathluck has nearly doubled in size. It's now more than four thousand acres. It seems really early for fire. In the decades you've been monitoring climate change, how much has this changed? Do you remember tundra fires happening thirty or forty years ago?
4: I do remember uh, tundra fires uh, happening certainly in the in the past. You know, especially since I grew up on the on the tundra, the tundra yeah, you know, for sure they were happening back then, but certainly not with the frequency that we're seeing now. Uh, things like we're seeing the the huge increase in lightning strikes, you know, which is one of the uh, the reasons that we're seeing many of these forest fires is because of the the increase in lightning strikes all across Alaska. So yeah, I've, I've certainly seen that uh, increase throughout my lifetime.
0: And how much is known about uh, how that affects the feedback loop or speeds it up, burning tundra, black surface, more heat absorption? How, how, much, how dramatic is that?
4: Well, i think it, it really plays a, a huge role in uh, especially in those conditions like the tundra where it makes um, uh, huge changes for uh, the, not only the people who live there but for the animals and the critters that try to exist there as well because it it uh, destroys their it destroys food for the people and for the animals uh, it changes uh, uh patterns perhaps of migration of uh, of uh, caribou and other uh, species that are part of that population uh it, it affects uh, certainly water uh water and river ways many many changes that are all part of that you know that this um even though this is really a permafrost the identity of this project is permafrost and we all know what an important and critical issue that is here uh you know the first um uh, I think some of the first people who really started talking about permafrost for our Indigenous communities. And that was more than 30 or 40 years ago when people in uh, way up north in uh, started noticing the, the changes in their, their uh, ice cellars, you know, that the ice cellars were melting. And that was, that was decades ago that that information uh, started coming from our communities. So it's really important for us to listen to the... Uh, The people who are closely related, most closely related to what goes on in their environment are the first ones to see what happens there and are more attuned to it
0: than others. Absolutely. I didn't quite... Can I just... uh, Yes, please.
3: I just want to... Yeah, thanks, Patricia, for bringing up all of these other changes that are happening because the project does have the identity of permafrost and it's something scientists tend to do is like take the world apart and then... They kind of try to put it back together, and so permafrost is one component. But as you know, Patricia points out, like it, there's so many changes that are happening that are interconnected that it's we you can't just focus on permafrost. Like the system and the people in the system and the wildlife functions as a whole. And so, while the name is permafrost pathways, it is a it is a whole systems project and something we really um, learn from folks who are living. Um, living in, in the Arctic.
0: Yeah, that that uh, absolutely makes sense. I wanted to ask about um, what 10, it's my understanding that there's going to be 10 communities that will be sort of the, I don't know if it's called the pilot communities or how you're characterizing that, but tell us who the communities are. Have they been selected yet?
5: Um, well, they are going to be doing uh, the selecting of whether or not they want to participate in this project and, When we started working with the communities we currently work with, um, we sent out letters of invitation to the communities that the Government Accountability Office had identified as being imminently threatened by flooding and erosion and that report was from, there was a report in 2003 and then one in 2009 that identified these critically um, environmentally impacted communities. And so we're currently working with them to identify if this funding will be helpful for their efforts. And um, Kugilinguk is one of the communities that has said that they want to participate in this project and work um, with us to figure out the ways forward in regard to adaptation and um, the resources that they need in order to implement what they've identified as their best long-term adaptation strategy.
0: All right. Well, let's go to the phones for just a moment. Roberta is in Shishmaref. Hello.
6: Hello, this is Roberta Ninkala calling from the village of Shishmath so on top of the Seward Peninsula. Uh, I, I live on an island surrounded by water, and every year we have um, coastal floods and erosion. And uh, when we travel inland during the summers, um, I noticed that a lot of the uh, land, some of them have uh, permafrost showing, land is dropping. And I was wondering if airport uh, community is uh, taking part in this, I guess, $40 million, uh, if, if anybody knows about it here in our community.
0: So you're wondering if Shishmaref might be involved in this project, Roberta? Roberta?
6: Yes. Yes,
0: ma'am. Robin, um, is it a a situation where communities can apply or how will it be decided?
5: Um, So there's no application. So I would say, um, Roberta, please contact me um, because we have been working with Shishmaref. And, um, And so... Um, I can give my email address if that's easiest, um, which is my first name spelled R-O-B-I-N dot my last name, which is spelled B-R-O-N as in Nancy, E-N at A-K-I-J-P dot org.
0: All right. There you go, Roberta. You can get in touch with Robin and find out more about this program. Thanks for the call. One goal of the project is to, probably one of the big goals, is to influence international climate policy. How do you see this influencing policy in the future? I don't imagine industrial emitters would welcome this being added to the carbon calculation, especially uh, if it's going to put more pressure on... um, places that are emitting gases to make those reductions much faster. How do you get this done, adding those numbers in against what will probably be an aggressive push against it? Sue, do you want to start off there? Sure.
3: Sure, I can start and others can add um, on other policy components. I'll I'll talk a little bit about um, mitigation. Um, It is, it is a challenge and I am a scientist not a policy person we do have partners um, who work on policy who will be helping us with this component of it and collaborators. There's a couple different pathways for getting information into climate negotiations one is the um, United Nations climate report so. um, the recent IPCC report just came out. So one is getting the information, getting the science done and getting the science out to the scientific community so that it can be put into these reports. But those reports are you know, coming out every six or seven years. And it's really um, the urgency. It's too much urgency to wait for those reports. By the time they come out, there's often a lag in the information. And so uh, much of the work that we do now and that we will continue and expand on is um, just essentially like meeting with policymakers. Um, part of the Paris Agreement was um, to assess kind of the state of our, I guess, our carbon accounting every you know, every several years. So we're working um, to get permafrost and numbers about permafrost emissions into that accounting. Um, I will say some folks may not want it in there, but there are, but it is what it is, right? And so we need so we need to get those numbers out there and get those number into the accounting. So it's a bit of meeting with um, international negotiators, working together with the scientific community, um, working with our contacts um, in, in the US and um, also with other nonprofits and advocacy groups. All and, right. and then I'm gonna, and that's on the climate mitigation end, and I'm gonna um, pass it off to, well, um, I don't know, Robin, if you want to talk about adaptation.
0: Before we go to that, Robin, we're going to, we'll come back to you in just a moment. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation on the building of a new program called Permafra- Permafrost Pathways that will be monitoring uh, greenhouse gas emissions from melting permafrost and also helping communities adapt to a rapidly changing climate as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk
1: of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
0: NEA Alaska is a
2: professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAAlaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the permafrost pathways project today with Sue Natale, the Arctic Program Director for the Woodwell Center for Climate Research. Robin Bronin is the Executive Director of the Alaska Institute for Justice. And Patricia Cochran is the Executive Director of the Alaska Native Science Commission. And we will be joined in... I guess we'll be joined right now by Julius Carl, who is with the Quigilanock Quigilanoc tribe, excuse me, for my tongue-tied there. <laughs> you can join our conversation at 1-800-478-8255. That's the number statewide, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550 550 You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Hello, Julius. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So, tell us, what are you seeing in your community in terms of warming and the problems that come from it? What What's happening there?
6: Um, um, major issue is um, river erosion, and it has been accelerating in the past decade. Last year alone, is. The river eroded 90 inches, and um, we have permafrost melt, which um, softens the land and makes the households sink, Um, so uh, the households need to be leveled at least twice a year.
0: Julius, what are your thoughts about, you've probably seen other projects. I know there's the LEO Network, the Local Environmental Observer Network, has been in place for quite some time. What are your thoughts about this new project, the Permafrost Pathways? How do you see it helping people adapt to the change that is happening?
6: Um, I didn't really look into this Project project yet I, I, I just recently came back to work. I was out for a while.
0: Okay. Well let's um let's go back to Patricia for a moment. Patricia, you mentioned the long tenure of um, indigenous people in Alaska, centuries. How do you see this indigenous science knowledge rippling out to help beyond communities here in Alaska?
4: Well, I think uh, in I think we're we've, we've been at the uh, at, as people say at the cutting edge of uh, of climate change uh, for 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 decades, and so I think that we've got so much experience, especially in our communities uh, who've had to deal with this, who've had to uh, who've had to move facilities who've had to look for various resources to try to help their communities who've really started to think um, strategically about how we live in a changing world. You know, we've had to do that because we've been faced with these kinds of problems. It's not just, um, it, it, it's, it's not a, a you know, a, a science project. It's not something that, uh, that kids think about in school. We live it. It's something that our communities have been dealing with for, for a long period of time. So I think that what our communities have to offer is that experience, that expertise that will help to share the information with the rest of the world. Uh, we know that what's happening here in the Arctic is just the, uh, the precursor of what is going to be seen and is starting to be seen all across our planet. So uh, when I when I talk with people, you know, whether they're in New York City or Miami or wherever they are, to try to get them to understand that what is happening in the Arctic is truly going to impact their lives and their life ways as well. And to show them that the information that's coming from our communities is critically important uh, to the discussion about how we are going to survive in this changing world. Uh, that's what I think the gift that our communities in Alaska can give not only to ourselves, uh, the, the future of our own generations to come, but also a gift to the rest of the world to help them see how it's impacted us and what they have to to look forward to and how they can deal with that. That's where I think the, the, the knowledge and the benefit from our, our communities is really critically important to, to the rest of the world.
0: Patricia, you said how much federal attention is paid to Indigenous knowledge and projects like this one are at the whim of whatever administration is in place at the time. How is there any continuity in projects that are multi-year and uh, with – given that backdrop of, you know, changing political dynamics – And what do you see as a better answer than these political whims driving back and forth uh, program interruption? Because, as we know, science relies heavily on continuity of information.
4: Yeah, well, Laurie, for sure, that that has been a, a major issue. Certainly, in all of the time that I've been dealing with this, and truthfully, uh, with the, the mentor, my mentors who came before me, you know, there are so many of my own mentors who have, who have passed on now that I I have to remember the the information that came from them and and to make sure to pass that on. I guess the best thing that we can do is to rely on what we can accomplish within our own communities. Because in fact, you know, politics change, funding changes, there really aren't any mandates that exist from administration to administration. Uh, so we never really know what's coming around the corner. So the best thing that we can do are the things that we're doing now, like with this project, is to really start looking from a community level. What can we do? Uh, What changes can we make in our own communities that do not have to just rely on the uh, the good wishes and the will of other people outside of ourselves? Uh, How can we we make those changes and how can we keep them going on uh, long after uh, the researcher has gone home?
0: All right. Thank you so much. If you'd like to join our conversation, the number statewide is 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's go to the phones now. Vera is in Barrow or Utqiagvik. Hello, Vera. Hi, this is Vera Williams. Hi, Vera. Did you have a question? Um,
6: uh, Yes. um, I know I'm listening to you guys talk about the permafrost project. And in Barrow, Alaska, I know for a fact, like, um, my parents' old house, the the house has uh, come off its pilings because of the permafrost melting. And um, so is there... um, projects going on to address uh, like houses coming off their pilings, houses come unleveling and uh, needing um, attention or help. Who do we ask for help from?
0: All right, Vera, thank you so much for the question. And that gets at, you know, the larger issue of um, in this program, you're putting in place monitoring and um, tribal communities will be uh, doing that science. I want you to talk more about how that will kind of ripple out. But a question like Vera, the practical side of, of um, once attention is drawn to these issues, then how do they get fixed? Uh, part of this permafrost pa- pathways project is about adaptation. So. How do you see that in real terms in the future uh, for questions like Vera has? Who do we turn to? Who does does uh, Vera and others like her turn to when they need assistance with slumping infrastructure?
5: Huh? Yeah, Lori, thank you for that really great question. And Vera also for explaining what's happening in Utqiagvik. And that that is the problem is that it's very, very difficult for communities to access the resources, for instance, from housing and urban development to address the issues that Vera just identified. And my own personal belief as a human rights lawyer is that the legal systems and government programs that we've put into place are not able to address the climate crisis impacts because these programs were created before we identified climate crisis as an issue. So one of the things that we did with Housing and Urban Development is we submitted comments to them asking them to prioritize environmentally threatened communities so that those communities could get priority access to resources like in domestic violence situations, um, domestic violence survivors are given priority. So it's those examples of what we want to accomplish through the five, six years of this project is to look at these government grant programs that are not providing the resources they need to the people who need them and coming up with solutions with the the communities as Patricia says, guiding us into how to make these government grant programs more accessible.
0: When you say five or six years of this program, do you mean it will take that amount of time to get the communities trained um, in how to monitor emissions, and and this will continue into the future? It's not going to stop in six years, is it?
5: No. What I'm talking about when I'm uh, the funding that we have is for six years, and as I mentioned, we are um, this. Project is building on the foundation that we've been working on for the last seven to eight years. So what we're hoping to do, um, and it's again this is my personal opinion, um, is what the United States need is a, a governance framework that is focused on relocation Um, And that we need that as a framework because there's no government agency that has the mandate and funding to facilitate a a community-wide relocation or to make it easy for infrastructure to be moved from an eroding shoreline or river line back away from the coast because we're not prioritizing the climate crisis as an urgent need for communities to access resources. And so my hope is, is that through the work that we've been doing with the tribes that we'll be able to continue to do with this funding is to scale it up so that the advocacy that we've already done has a much larger and bigger impact than it already has.
0: All right. Well, thank you for that. We are going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the program permafrost pathways that is being Uh, Developed and will be undertaken in Alaska as Talk of Alaska continues.
1: Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station.
0: People
2: who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong. Ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quitline at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quitline. As new COVID variants spread, vaccines can help protect you and your community from severe illness. A booster shot provides additional protection, especially for those at higher risk. If you're 12 and older and it's been five months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine. You are now eligible for a booster. Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services.
0: Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you'd like to join our conversation, you if you have questions about the permafrost pathways, program and what it may mean for your community, give us a call, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422, You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. On the permafrost pathways website, there's a striking graphic projecting the loss of permafrost over wide sections of the Arctic over the next century. What does the science say right now for the rate of permafrost loss Sue do you want to take that
3: yeah sure um so permafrost is already thawing we know this from um, the scientists who have been observing it but we also know this from people who have been living on permafrost who have been observing this for decades and so um, this is not news for for many people. Um, the rate, the permafrost, even where it is not thawing, the temperatures are warming. Um, And so I think the big message that I would say from this graph that you're pointing up is that one of the things you can do on the graph is select different emission scenarios. And, you know, yes, permafrost thaw is underway, but we're not, we can um, control our future Right. So like, yes, people are being impacted, but less people will be impacted if we greatly reduce fossil fuel emissions. And there's very different trajectories that we can we can move along. And I think, you know, it's it's really critical when we're thinking about this, that we we you know, one of the things that I'm very grateful about this project is that we are have a range of expertise, a range of different um, Experiences and you know to to contribute to this project and to contribute to our understanding of both the trends that have been happening, um, the impacts, and also the
0: solutions. And Um, how how much in the real world setting in the ten communities that um, have any of them stepped forward yet, and you've settled on some yet, or do are you still in that process? Is it too early to know? And if you have. Uh, started working with communities let us know who they are and and where they're located and and what's the practical nature of what kind of technical expertise and um, you know instrument handling will have to be done by tribal communities how much training will be involved and and uh, uh, how will this work be undertaken
5: so we've just started the you know the um The permafrost pathways project just got launched last week. Um, And so, for instance, in Kugilingak, Sue and I went there uh, prior to the pandemic. And um, it's very simple. The technology is very simple um, to measure permafrost thaw depth. Um, We also went to communities with the Division of Geological and Geophysical Surveys to do community-based erosion monitoring. And, um, and so we're in the process of, of talking with communities to figure out how this funding that we've been able to access can assist them in implementing their implementation of their, uh, their vision of climate in- adaptation. Um, the other thing that I would say is one of the significant things that happened from the previous work that we've done is We, um, with the indigenous peoples that we were working with, we identified a hazard in Alaska called Usteq, spelled U-S-T-E-Q. It's a Yupik word and has been incorporated into our Alaska State Hazard Mitigation Plan, meaning catastrophic land collapse. And that catastrophic land collapse is being caused by the combination of erosion, thawing permafrost and flooding. And so part of this work is documenting USTAC um, and making sure that when we're not only documenting it, but again, connecting this with policy because the policy um, gaps are large. And while the government, federal government right now is trying to address those gaps um, and they are trying to, it's not enough. So I wanna acknowledge that the current administration is attempting to address these critical issues happening in Alaska native communities but it's not enough and as Julia mentioned Julius mentioned previously they need equipment so that you know to to move the structures within their community that is not um that should be easy for our federal government to figure out how to get big equipment to communities so that they can move the infrastructure in their community away from these eroding, River lines or shorelines.
0: All right. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Scott is in Anchorage. We just have a few minutes left in today's program. Hi, Scott. Hello, Lori. Do you have a question?
7: Uh, a, a comment and a bit of a question. Um, I was born in territorial Alaska, and I've done uh, most of my professional work in Alaska. All my professional work is an engineering geologist. I've done. I've looked at thermal erosion, erosional niching at New Exit. I've looked at... The Shishmaref uh, sea erosion due to decreasing uh, sea ice seasonal sea ice locations. I've looked at uh, uh, the type of permafrost that we have in Newtok and Kipnuk and places like that. I was struck, even in the '70s when I did this work, by the by the delicacy by the. Uh, uh, the amount that this ground is subject to the type of changes that everybody's talking about here, what I'm concerned about, and I and I approve of these programs. I use USGS information all the time in my work and deeply appreciated the, the value of the work that those folks did. And I believe that training and money should be going into the Bush, into the Bush communities, and much more than what we, we do now. My concern is this is that uh, one, of the, one of the speakers mentioned it, strategic. It is important for us to look at what we can do locally, but what I'm concerned about is, is that climate change is a done deal. We know that in decades, in decades, if we don't all change our ways, that our kids, the kids that are in our house today, are going to have miserable lives. And yet our scientists are not saying that. We have senators going into our U.S. Senate with snowballs in their hands and saying, look at this, climate change doesn't exist. We, we can't have that. I, I understand a scientist that says, I'm a scientist, I'm not a politician. That was my role. I understand that. But it's time now for, in every program like this, for us to stand up and say, look, this the tornadoes in your backyard right now, the heat storms, the huge fires, the the outrageous floods, the droughts that are occurring right now are due to this global things. And the people in the United States, the people in Europe need to hear it. It's not just what's happening in New Talk.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Scott. We need to wrap up a little bit because uh, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to give our guests a chance to respond. I appreciate Your uh, passion for this and the sense of urgency that you're describing it under. Um, One of the things that uh, Scott was talking about was, you know, making this seem uh, more concrete and speaking out in that way. In 2021, last year, the International Panel on Climate Change, IPCC's sixth assessment report, the report includes emissions from permafrost for the first time. How important was that, and was there any attention drawn to it or backlash against it similar to what Scott was describing? Sue?
3: Um, yeah, I'll, and I'll be uh, quick so others can have time. I um, That was a big deal that it was included. I will say that it was... Um, not not fully included. And in w- in one thing about local knowledge and why it is so important, I will just say the way that the models are depicting permafrost thaw right now is this Um, kind of gradual top-down process. It doesn't include things like Tech, And so this um, indigenous knowledge, local knowledge is so critical for the scientists to learn because otherwise we can't scale this up. We can't get a good picture of what's happening across the Arctic if we don't have this knowledge on the ground. And then I also do think these experiences of folks who are feeling this firsthand are, are really critical to make this real for everyone. So yes, it was a big deal that it was in the IPCC report, but it was definitely, un, in my opinion, um, underrepresented because it did not include some really important processes um, such as Ustek, and then also things like fire, the impact of fire and combination of fire and permafrost thought. Permafrost says doesn't happen in a bubble. It's part of a process. It's happening, you know, multiple ecosystem components that are impacting it. And that's a tricky thing to get into
0: a model. One, one figure on the website says permafrost thaw emissions could use 25 to 40 percent of the remaining carbon budget to stay within the two degree threshold in the Paris climate agreement. Could How could this realistically get accomplished and what would the timeline be to, to uh, bring the carbon budget, uh, to add that into the carbon budget and eat up that much of it? What does that look like?
3: Well, you know, we're just over one degree Celsius, global average increase, and it doesn't look, it looks terrible right now. So 1.5 degrees Celsius is going to be worse and two degrees Celsius is worse. And we're aiming for much higher if we don't account for permafrost thaw. So I guess what I would say is like, yes, things are already thawing, things are already bad, but they can be a lot worse. And so the action that I would say is, you know, I agree, like very much increased urgency for... Um, At local to global scales, because it has to be, we have to address this through our governments, through our businesses, through our, you know, communities, Um, we we must because people are suffering and feeling this now, and and it it will get worse. Well, um, Well, if I could... Uh, oh,
5: sorry. Sure. T- Just Scott's point. I mean, this is why we have to urgently figure out adaptation and make sure that resources are being provided to the communities that are being imminently threatened by the climate crisis. Because right now, they are not getting the resources they need, um, and it's making it extraordinarily difficult to adapt.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much to my guest today, Sue Natale, the Arctic Program Director at Woodwell Center for Climate Research. Robin Bronin, Executive Director of the Alaska Institute for Justice. Patricia Cochran, who is the Executive Director of the Alaska Native Science Commission. And earlier we heard from Julius Carl with Quigilanock Tribe. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones and social media today, Kavitha George helped us out. I'm Lori Townsend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.